The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Amen, church. This morning we'll be reading from the third chapter of Galatians, looking at verses 10 through 14. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And all God's people said, Amen. Dear brothers and sisters, see how much God loves you. Not just in sending his son to be born of a woman. not just to shine into this dark and sinful world as the light of life. Beloved, I, I pray you see the love of God on display in the death of his son. We talk in very heavy tones around here. There's a great sobriety to the way that we handle God's word, the way that we approach worship, the way that we take communion. Dear friends, I pray the devil does not use that as an opportunity to steal from you the sense of love that God has. It is deeper than anything you could ever imagine. There's nothing you can do, there's nothing this world can do to separate you from that love because you have been purchased at an incredible price. Dear friends, I just feel the compulsion to stand here this morning and let you know that you are precious to God. And therefore, you are precious to me. Would you pray with me? Father, it is difficult at times to comprehend how you could love us. Father, if I'm honest and I look at myself in the mirror, I recognize that there's oftentimes there's not a whole lot to love. And yet, Father, based on the promises of Scripture, we know that you don't look at us based on merit based on performance. Father, that you look at us, those that have been joined to Jesus Christ through repentant faith, that you look at us and you see his perfect righteousness. You see nothing but objects of love. You see a people that you delight in blessing. We know that it brings you great joy to sing songs of love over us. So, Father, we desire to feel that today. We desire to be filled with and strengthened by this picture, this ultimate picture of your love, the giving of your Son, Jesus Christ. We're reminded that all that he suffered, he suffered that we might be brought to you. That we might not be destroyed with all the rest of the darkness. But that we might become children of the light. So Father, I pray that you would speak to us through your word now. That your spirit would apply those words. That we would hear them, that we would believe in them. That we would be changed by them. Father, we love you because you first loved us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So two weeks ago, 
I told you based on the teaching of Scripture, I told you that the most telling thing about a man, the easiest way to determine whether or not a man has come to truly place his faith and trust in Jesus Christ and the gospel that he proclaims is by examining the way that you walk through trial and suffering. Those who have been born again by the work of the Spirit, those who find themselves as a new creation in Christ Jesus, you will not fall away when the pressures of this world come to bear on you. By the working of God, by the power of his word, by the holding of his spirit, true disciples will endure to the glory of God. So in recent days, I've been wondering to myself, is there a similar test for the church? Is the way we can discern whether or not our faith is real, the way we can discern whether or not we're actually following after Jesus Christ is by examining the way that we walk through suffering. Is there a similar way to look at a corporate body, a local gathering of professing believers? Is there a way to look at a group like this and determine whether or not we are likewise similarly, similarly trusting in Christ? Now, of course, the answer might be, just look at the individual lives of the believers. If what you've got here is a, a body that's comprised of men and women and each of them are suffering well. If what you've got is a body that's made together of a bunch of men and women and each of them are suffering with Christ. Each of them are undergoing persecution and enduring in their faith to the very end for the name of Jesus Christ. Then surely isn't that a picture that the church as a whole is submitting to and living under the headship of Christ. Now, dear friends, there's great validity to this line of thinking. Of course, you can't have a church that's seeking after God if none of its people are. If the vast majority of its people are not looking to Jesus Christ as their only hope and their ultimate treasure, then of course we could say that the church has somehow lost its way. But you must also know that a church has a corporate identity. Yes, a church is the people. It's the gathered assembly of the saints. But much like a person, there's something more there. You see, you're, you're more than just two arms and two legs and lungs and a heart and whatever else makes up a man. There's an essence. There's a spirit with a lowercase s. So similarly, a, a church, we have an identity that's much more than just Brian plus Andrew plus Teresa plus Danielle. We're more than just the sum of each individual members. There is an essence, a disposition, a character, a spirit, if I can say that. There's just a tone to an overall church, more than just the sum of its individual parts, but where is this body moving? And what direction is this body heading? I suppose what I'm asking is, how can we know that we as a corporate body are actually following after Jesus Christ as Lord? How can we know that we are actually preaching and giving our lives to pursuing the true and saving gospel? How can we know that the heart of this church is right? The easiest answer, of course, is that we must examine ourselves against the scriptures. We have only one rule of faith, and that is the Holy Scriptures. That is the Word of God. And so, of course, we examine ourselves. We hold ourselves up as a corporate body, the things that we preach, the things that we teach, the things that we pursue after. We say, do these things match up with the Word of God? But, dear friends, that can be incredibly tricky, can it? How do you understand this Word? We're taking words that were written in Hebrew or Greek thousands of years earlier. In addition to those having to be translated, then we have to interpret them. What is actually meant by these words? So I've yet to meet a church, as I've told you on many occasions, I've yet to meet a church that said that they don't hold to the Bible as the ultimate authority. I've yet to meet a church that doesn't say they give themselves completely to pursuing after the word of God. How can we tell that we're actually doing that? Because self-deception comes very, very easily. And there's so much emotion and there's so much tradition involved in this. So how can we be sure? How can we know that we as a church, under the headship of Christ, are actually pursuing after the gospel which saves? Again, I say, with so much emotion and so much tradition, it's incredibly difficult for a church to look at themselves and say, well, you know, I believe we've veered off course. I believe we've lost sight of who God has called us to be. I believe we've lost sight of who the Bible tells us we're meant to be and what we're called to pursue. So this question can be incredibly difficult to answer in the affirmative. But churches, I sat and thought about this this week. As I 
prayed about it and I studied the word of God, I did find that there's a very easy way to answer this question in the negative. There's one undeniable sign that we as a people have missed the mark. Church, you must know that if we preach a gospel that the lost world can understand and embrace. If we give our lives to a gospel that seems reasonable to almost everyone else around us. If we find that we and everyone around us are quite comfortable, completely unchallenged and unchanged by the gospel we preach and the way we pursue it, then it doesn't matter how much scripture we recite. It doesn't matter how spiritual we sound. And it does not matter how big our congregation grows. We can be all but sure that we have missed the mark. You understand what I'm saying to you? I'm not implying that we try to be offensive. I'm not saying that we need to be unnecessarily difficult. I'm certainly not saying that we seek to alienate the world around us. But church, you must look at scripture and recognize that everywhere Jesus went, he and the gospel he proclaimed were rejected by most and received by few. This teaching is hard. Who can hear it? Isn't that what the people said? We read about this in John 6. There was a great following of, there was a great group of people following after Jesus Christ. The crowds were swelling to unbelievable numbers in the thousands because Jesus had met their earthly needs, because he had made them comfortable. He had given them temporal gifts that could be enjoyed right here and now that could ease suffering even in the moment. Gifts like bread, physical, edible bread. But now he was calling these people to go deeper. He was trying to show them that this bread is just a sign of something so much greater. He was telling them that they must be joined to him in true and radical dependence. He was teaching the people that he had come to give life to the world, but that this life could only be received by repentant faith. He explained that unless we find our ultimate satisfaction in him, we will not be joined with him in eternal life. Now, none of this made sense to the crowd. They began to grumble amongst each other. How can this man say that he's come from heaven? Isn't this the son of Joseph? We know his mother. We know his father. In short, the things that Jesus was preaching, the things that he demanded, they collided with what seemed right in these men's eyes. So they were about to scatter. Much like the rich young ruler, he demanded too much, and so they prepared to walk away. Jesus was on the verge of losing this massive crowd that he had gathered together. This group that had grown to thousands, it was about to shrink to just a dozen, and one of them was the devil. But instead of softening his message, instead of backing down just a bit, Jesus pressed deeper. He began to talk about drinking his blood and eating his flesh. Certainly a picture of this table here. He said that unless we feast upon him, that his very purpose in coming out was to give his life, and unless we feast upon him, Unless we are so jo closely joined together with him, like bread coming into our body, that we will have no place with him, that we will have no place in his kingdom. And then we read this. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? To which Jesus responded, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And then he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Clearly this was not the answer that the people were looking for. Because then we immediately read that after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. What was Jesus' response to these people rejecting him? What was Jesus' response to the fact that they did not like the gospel that he received? It wasn't to soften his tone. It wasn't to make the gospel more palatable. It wasn't to remove the mystery and the hard sayings. It wasn't to second guess his tactics. It was to go deeper. It was to press these people deeper. And what he simply said to them was this, your rejection of this message does not make it untrue. Your rejection of me as Messiah does not mean that my mission has failed. Dear friends, I did not come out to preach a message that would be received by all the world. I didn't come out to preach a message that would seem reasonable to you. Unless my Father grants it, you will not receive it. 
but I did not come out to build a crowd. I did not come out to satisfy the masses. I came out to offer you life, the words of spirit and life. And unless my father does a work in drawing you to me, you will not receive it. Dear children, you must see this. The words of Christ are spirit and life. For those who have been given to the Son by the Father, for those who have been caused to be born again by the Spirit, the cross of Christ is the wisdom and power of God unto salvation. But to those who are perishing, for those who have natural minds, for those who are lost in their sin, it will always be a stumbling block, a scandal, foolishness, folly, an offense to many in the world out there and to many within the gathered church. To many who have not been born again, they will always reject this word. It simply cannot be received. And so if we find ourselves as a church proclaiming a word that is received by all, we find ourselves proclaiming a word that allows people to feel comfortable in their sin, that allows them to receive it in their flesh, that allows them to continue on unchanged, that does not force them to fall on their knees and say, God, this is a hard word. Who can receive it? But not my mind, not my will, but yours. Change my heart. Help me to receive it. Help me to believe it. Dear friends, if we preach a message that does not bring us here, it simply cannot be true. So church, I say all that because we finally come to the crucifixion. We give ourselves to preaching nothing but Christ and him crucified. Well, we finally come to the crucifixion. And what you have to know is, I'm not certain how many weeks we're going to spend here. I'm not going to try and drag it out, but we're also not going to rush. So I do not know how many messages we're going to take to work through this story of the crucifixion. I do know one thing for certain, that what we will find right here in the very crescendo of the gospel is all that natural man detests. You're going to see the depravity and the cost of sin. You're going to see the punishment that our sin deserves. You're going to see a clear picture that there's absolutely nothing that man can do to deal with either of those problems. And it's absolutely certain that as we come to this, as we seek and strive and work as a united people to understand what these words mean, as we work hard to understand what is Mark actually saying, What is Mark actually saying by the words that are written on this page? And then we exhort each other to live in light of that. We're sure to meet opposition, primarily from our flesh. And that old self that we seek to deny, it's sure to pop up as we wade deeper and deeper into this world, into this word. As the God of the universe exposes things that we'd rather leave hidden, as he presses us beyond the understanding of our natural mind, as he pushes us to places that our flesh refuses, that old self is bound to pop up. That sinful heart is bound to pop up and say, life's hard enough. Why do we sit under such difficult teaching? Tell us something happy. Don't strain us so much. Don't stretch us so much. Make us comfortable. Give us a pat on the back and tell us to go in peace. In addition to that, your mind is going to try to convince you that you are foolish and cause you to doubt. Your mind is sure to say to you in the weeks to come, that's not what we've always been taught. Dear friends, that's not untrue. This isn't what you've always been taught. But we don't gather today to affirm tradition. Listen, if I say to you there's never been something that's never been said in the last 2,000 years of the church, there's probably a problem there. I've not somehow cracked the code. I'm not the greatest preacher that's ever lived. I don't understand the scripture. I, I, I am ashamed at how little I understand the scriptures. By the way, I told this to a couple that came into my office this week. We were doing a um, baby dedication or a meeting, and we're, we're talking about that. And there's some books on my, on my uh, what, what's the thing you put your feet on? Ottoman. There's some books on my Ottoman. I said, I'm going to tell you this, but don't tell anybody else in the church. But I don't like having secrets, so I'm going to go ahead and tell you this. These were books literally written to tell you how to read the Bible. I'm a dude that gets paid to read the Bible. And I'm going back to baby books that tell me, how do you read the Bible? How do you understand the Bible? I've bought other books that just say, how do you read books in general? Because the more I read this word, the more I recognize, I don't know what I'm doing. 
So if I stand up and I say something to you that's never been said in the 2,000-year history of the church, you need to get up and run. But I don't gather here today to affirm your traditions. We need to know what this word says. We need to pierce through the traditions and the emotion and the feelings and what we've always been told. We need to go back to the source and we need to say, what do these words actually mean? Under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, a man called John Mark wrote actual words with actual meaning. And that's all that matters. That's all that matters. It is the epitome of foolishness to demand that we read our thoughts into this word. It is the epitome of arrogance to demand that this word comport with what feels best to us. So we give ourselves to knowing what does this word mean knowing that anything else is nothing more than worldly wisdom and philosophy masquerading as religion. So as uncomfortable as it is, we're gonna push through all the things that once made us comfortable. We're gonna push through all of those thoughts and those emotions and those traditions that we once held onto. Do we kill every tradition? No, not the ones that line up with the word of God. We're gonna push through all of that and seek to know what is here. We're going to trust God to reform that which has been deformed by sin and emotion and just plain thoughtlessness. We're going to seek by the power of God to give ourselves to whatever is said here, no matter the cost. So I'm pleading with you this morning. As we work through this word, seek to handle it rightly. Hold me to account for handling it rightly. Do not give in to the whispers in your head. And do not give in to the whispers in the hall. Do not allow yourself, do not allow the, the devil to have an inch. There's far too much at stake. And I want you at the same time to recognize that the things that we give ourselves to here the things that most churches devote all of their energies to avoiding. The very thing that most churches would consider their ultimate nightmare, namely, making their people uncomfortable. Offending good and decent Christian men and women and then watching their numbers dwindle. That very well may be the ultimate sign that what we proclaim is the truth. The God-given, spiritually discerned word of life. But don't worry, this week's going to be easy, I'm sure. Stay on your feet, please. Reverence, a reading of God's word. We return to moving verse by verse through Mark's gospel. We begin in the 15th chapter. 21st verse. We're going to read all the way down through verse 32, but we won't cover nearly that much today. This is the word of God. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. And divided his garments amongst them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And with him were crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from that cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. But he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. All God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Father God, we wait to hear from you. Would you speak to us through your word and help us to understand what it is that you've said here? For it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. By the way, I meant what I said. This is not going to be a particularly challenging message, I don't think, this week. 
by nature of the fact that we'll only make it through the first two verses. So if you're sitting around waiting on me to drop some hammer that's going to offend you all and make you run out, it's probably not going to happen this week. Come back next week and we will save it for there. So you'll recall that Jesus has been stripped and flogged and the soldiers who had been given charge of Jesus, they've called together the entire battalion. This was maybe as many as 600 men. So they gathered together specifically for the sake of mocking Jesus. They arrayed him in a purple robe of some sort. They bound, they wound together a, uh, a crown of thorns and, and hammered that down upon his head. This was a show of the contempt that these soldiers had for the Jewish people. They had, they had much frustration, surely, pent up for these people. And so now they had in their possession not just any old Jew, but they had the one that many called the king of the Jews. This one who himself said that he was the son of their God. So their, their contempt it had reached just an inordinate, inexplicable level. So in addition to clothing him in this robe and putting this crown upon his head, they gave him a scepter, a fake scepter that was a reed. Eventually they took that reed back from him and they struck him in the head with it. And they, they spit in his face. They bent down on the ground and they paid mock homage to him as they cried out, Hail, the king of the Jews. For reasons that these men probably could not fully explain, they absolutely abhorred this man that they now had in their possession. But eventually the mocking was over. It was time to get on with the crucifixion. And so they stripped Jesus back down. They put his own clothes on him and they let him out to be crucified. Now based on what we read in John 19, 23, it seems as though there was only four soldiers that were given direct orders to handle the crucifixion of Jesus. There may have been others there, but it only took four to lead him out. And we've discussed many times that it doesn't really matter. It's completely inconsequential the number of soldiers that were leading Jesus out. With but a word, he could have called down enough heavenly reinforcements to wipe out every single man on earth. More than that, this one they had in their possession, he had more power than all the angels combined. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane with just a word, as he said, Ego ami, I am. All the men there stumbled back and they fell to the ground. So four men, four million men, it didn't really matter. If Jesus didn't want to be crucified, he would not be crucified. And yet driven by a desire to see the glory of God, a desire for his own exaltation, a desire to save you and I, Jesus willingly went to the cross. He didn't put up any resistance. He didn't plead for his life. And this had to have caught the attention of everyone going on because this, this was not normal. Men had to be dragged to the cross. It would make a man mad. If you knew that torture waited for you on the other side of that hill, if you knew what awaited you was the most inexplicable of tortures, it would cause you to lose your mind. So men frothing at the mouth and crying out and, and begging for their life, fighting with every last ounce of energy they had not to get to the cross. And yet, here comes Jesus, allowing himself to be led. Again, we see this evidence that no one takes Jesus' life from him. He lays it down of his own accord. He lays it down, and it is he that will take it back up. But as powerful as Jesus was, in his infinite and unchanging divinity, in his humanity, Jesus was giving out fast. That's what we read here in verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. So the scourging that Jesus took apparently had taken a lot out of him. You know, many men, they didn't make it to the cross. After you had been flogged, they would lose so much blood, so much meat and, and muscle, and eventually they just would give out and die long before they even made it to the place where they were to be crucified. And apparently Jesus had reached this point. Now the trip from there the trip from the praetorium to Golgotha, it was not long. But you take into, fact, take into account the fact that he had lost so much blood, that he had had a sleepless night, the agony of his prayers in the garden, the emotional toll of being abandoned by all his friends, all of these things together brought Jesus to the point of death. So his fully human body, it was no longer able to continue moving forward. Whether he carried the full cross or just the 100-pound cross beam, it was too much for him to bear in his humanity at this moment. So we're not told why the soldiers grabbed this man called Simon and told him that he had to carry the cross for Jesus. It seems extremely unlikely that this was an act of mercy and grace. We saw the way they treated him with contempt back in the praetorium, and we see the way they treat him with contempt once they get to the place of the cross. And so it seems very unlikely that they were having sympathy for Jesus. Perhaps they just got tired of waiting on him. They had, charged, they had been given a charge to crucify Jesus, and their charge was to get him to that place. Don't let him die on the way. So maybe they were just filling out their evil orders or perhaps they selfishly wanted to see him suffer more. We don't really know what the exact reason, whatever their motivation was, we do know the ultimate cause. We know that the God of the universe had preordained all of it. God had decreed it. Jesus had declared it. 
He would not die by the sword of Herod. He would not die by Jewish stoning in Galilee. He would not die by scourging in the praetorium. He would not die by blood loss along the road. Jesus Christ would die as a cursed man hanging upon a tree at this time, in this place, on this day. So the God who had orchestrated all of this, the God who had been moving all creation, that he could bring his son to this place that you and I might be saved, he pressed this man into service, this passerby called Simon. Now Simon, the name isn't exclusively Hebrew or Greek, but most commentaries, they seem to agree that this was surely a Jewish man. He was from this place called Cyrene. This was a, a town in northern Africa. It's a place that's now consumed by Libya, right on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. We're told that he's coming in from out of the field. Now, we don't, from, from out of the country, and this doesn't necessarily mean that he was out there working. It seems to me what happened was this was a Jewish man, or at very least a God-fearing man, that was coming into Jerusalem for the Passover. This tells me that probably this man didn't know everything else that had happened. This does not mean that Jesus was an absolute stranger. Word of Jesus had traveled far and wide, of his miracles, of his teaching. We don't know anything about what Simon knew or didn't know about Jesus. But it seems very likely that this man was coming into Jerusalem for the sake of the Passover. Now, crucifixions, they take place along major roads. It was meant to be as public and as humiliating as possible. This was a sign to anyone else. Anyone else that would rebel against Rome. Anyone else that would think about uprising against the emperor? See what happens to those who rebel. See what happens to those that join in the insurrection. See what we do to the very worst of our criminals. And so it was meant to be a very public execution. And so it would have been common for people to be coming and going right past this site, the road that Jesus was traveling as he headed to Golgotha. And dear friends, I think what we see here in the life of this man called Simon is the reality that you never know when that moment will come. You never know when the moment will come. This man was minding his own business. He had no desire to get involved in the, or, in the entire ordeal. In fact, the word that's used here by Matthew and Mark, they tell us that Simon was angoreo. That means requisitioned. He was pressed, pressed into forced service. Luke tells us that he was seized by the soldiers. This man didn't leave his house thinking, I'm going to go out and do a good deed today. This man didn't leave his house going out and looking for Jesus. We're not even told that this man looked and saw Jesus and thought, there goes a righteous man, I'm going to help him. I'm going to take up his cross. I'm going to help him get to the place of his execution. Now again, please understand, this doesn't mean necessarily that Simon knew nothing about Jesus. Again, we're not told that. But the fact of the matter is, this guy was going along like any other day, minding his own business, taking his boys to Jerusalem, probably for the Passover, and just like that, he was pressed into service to take up this object, the ultimate object, this burdensome, heavy object of shame, the cross. Please tell me you see the picture. Dear friends, you don't know. You don't know when the day will come when you will have an encounter like this with Jesus Christ. You do not know the circumstances surrounding the day when you will come to saving faith in Jesus Christ and be pressed into service for his sake. I said to you last week, or it was the week before maybe, I don't remember, but I said at some point in the last couple of weeks, that nobody signs up for suffering. Then after the service, one of the foster moms in our church, she came up to me chuckling and half-heartedly, but with great seriousness said, don't you know that everybody that signs up for foster care signs up for suffering? And that's absolutely true. That's absolutely true, but I suppose what I would say is that you were probably minding your own business up until that point. See, there's probably 25 families in this church that are involved in varying levels of foster care and adoption ministry. And if we were to do a survey of all of them, we would find a wide range of circumstances that led them to that point. For some, it was sorrow and loss and barrenness. For some, it was a chance encounter with some other couple that had been through the process. For some, it was an unexpected call from a school. For others, it was just this inexplicable compulsion within their soul to do something that was completely outside of their comfort zone. But I've yet to meet a person that says, you know what, we woke up one morning and said, life is way too simple. I think what we're going to do is we're going to give our life to every last opportunity for heartbreak and chaos. Let's foster. The reality is these people just knew Jesus. They'd come to meet Jesus Christ. The circumstances of that meeting were probably every bit as seemingly random as this. But they knew Christ and they cherished him. They wanted him more than they wanted an ease of suffering. And they committed whatever it costs, whatever the weight, 
Whatever the chaos and the pain and the suffering and the hurt, we will do that that we may have more of him and that we may share him with others. It wasn't a desire for suffering. It was a desire to glorify God, to see him glorified in the lives of others. And when the suffering came, they pressed on. They endured. They carried forward. Looking back, they would have never seen it coming. But on the backside, they can't imagine doing anything else. Church, I'm convinced that's what we're seeing here in the life of this man called Simon. I think what we're seeing here is the salvation of Simon and those that he loved most. And the reason I say this is because we're given this man's name. As you work through the Gospels, what you'll find is that we're not told the names of anybody other than big public figures, men like Herod and Pilate and the chief priests. We're not told anyone else's name unless they're a big public figure or they're a follower of Jesus Christ. Not just the apostles, not just the ladies that would follow him there and endure to the end, but men like Nicodemus, men like Joseph of Arimathea, men like Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. It seems almost certain to me that that's the reason why Mark tells us these men's names. That people there in the church in Rome, they would have immediately known, I know him. So you're telling me I can go tell him about that? I can go ask him about that day? He was the one, that guy? He seems like one of us. We know him in the church. That this is the reason they told us this guy's name. Evidence, there, there's even further evidence for this as we come to the end of Paul's letter to the Romans. We read in uh, Romans 16, 13. Greet Rufus, one of the sons, isn't it? Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. It seems very clear to me that this man called Simon, that he raised his children to come to know and to fear and to trust and to follow Jesus Christ as Lord. Apparently his wife too heard about what happened. She became such a follower of Jesus Christ that Paul counts her as a spiritual mother to him. We do know that there was a great church that rose up in Cyrene in northern Africa. As a matter of fact, if you go to the book of Acts, Acts 13, what we find is that when Paul and Barnabas were set apart and sent out on their first missionary journey, that it was Christians from Cyrene that were there as a part of that group seeking the power of the Holy Spirit to send him forth. Dear friends, you don't know when the day will come. Not just the day of your salvation. Not just the day when your opportunity to suffer for Jesus Christ will come. The day where Jesus Christ might work through you. You weren't planning. It was an ordinary day like any other. You didn't get up looking for suffering. You didn't get up looking for Jesus Christ. And yet on that day, God worked in your life through unexplicable circumstances to bring you to salvation, those you love, and to influence the entire world for the sake of the gospel. And there's certainly more than one Rufus. I can see some of you aren't convinced. That's okay. I'm sure there was more than one Rufus. That wasn't just a dog's name back then. That was a pretty common name. And so I'm sure there was more than one Rufus in the early church in the first century. I won't fight you on it. But I do think that's exactly what God is showing you here, dear friends. You don't know when the day will come. You do not know when the day of your salvation comes, and you do not know when the day will come when God will use that to affect your entire world. And that even in the midst of the greatest of evil, even in the midst of the greatest of shame, in the middle of God's ultimate punishment upon his son, he is still calling men to himself, pressing them into service, causing them to suffer in ways they could not have expected. Your friends were reminded that there is no formula for this thing. There's no ordinary pattern for the way God saves men. There's no way to plan this thing out. We just continually press on in service to Jesus Christ. We continue to share his gospel. We continue to follow after him. And then we watch as he does things just like this. So it's at this point that Luke tells us something else. And I want to I take a quick look there, not because it's necessary to the, to the flow of what Mark is doing in his gospel, but because it's the last word of public preaching before Jesus, before, from Jesus before he reaches the cross. In addition to this, I think it shows us a sharp contrast between Simon and some others that were along that path. So you'll remember that two weeks ago, we talked about this encounter. Matthew records this for us. As Jesus stands trial and Pilate over and over and over again says, this man is innocent. I find nothing worthy of death in him. He eventually gets so exasperated that he cries out to the people, why would I crucify him? What evil has he done? But the people wouldn't take no for an answer. So you remember that Pilate then, he gets a bowl. He gets a bowl full of water and he comes out and he washes his hands before the people and he says, I'm innocent of this man's blood. Do you remember what the Jewish people cried back to him? His blood be upon us and upon our children. And so what we see here is just hours later, as Jesus is struggling to get to Golgotha and Simon has to pick up his cross and carry it for him. We read in Luke 23, beginning in verse 27. Verse 27. 
And there followed Jesus a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? So these women, we don't, we don't know exactly where these women came from. Some commentators, they suggest that maybe these were paid mourners. You remember that was a thing in Jewish culture. Whenever someone would die, you would pay people to come and to wail and to mourn and lament. And there's a physical aspect to this, the, the beating of the, of the chest and the, the, the rending of the garments, this, this crying out to show just how sad you were over this thing that had come upon you and your family. So perhaps maybe these women were paid to come and to mourn over Jesus, but it seems likely that they really were sorrowful over what they saw. That there really was genuine emotion here. I gotta imagine that possibly some of these women had come into contact with Jesus and he had healed them or the people that they loved. And perhaps what happened is they had come to this point where they were broken because they realized that this man was not the Messiah that they had hoped for. They thought the miracles would continue, that the healing would continue, that he would rid them from persecution under the Roman hand. And yes, they come to the end of this thing and they recognize he's not putting up a fight. He's not gathering together an army that they cried. Perhaps undergirding all of this was the realization that this truly was an innocent man, a beaten and bloodied and despised and soon to die, righteous and innocent man. But whatever the case, they're crying out and they're lamenting and there's great emotion and weeping. And you would expect maybe at some point that Jesus would look to these women and he would say, well, thank you for your tenderness. I'm thankful for your emotion. I'm thankful that you're mournful over what awaits me. But he doesn't say this, does he? He looks at them and he says, don't weep for me. Weep for yourself and for your children. Jesus had come to his own and his own had rejected him. Because of this, destruction was coming. These people had cried out, crucify, crucify, his blood be upon us. The responsibility for the death of this man be upon us, and it would. The responsibility for Jesus' death would fall upon these people. That's why Jesus said to Pilate, the one that has handed me over to you, his sin is greater than yours. Because a day would come when the Roman army would surround Jerusalem, completely destroying the temple and everything else. No one stone left upon another. That on that day, these women's children would starve. That they would burn in their own houses. That as many as 500 men a day would be crucified outside the city. The judgment of God would fall upon this place. So much so that Jesus says, you would wish that you were barren and had, had, never, had, had no children. That was, a sign of the, that, was a, that was a sign of God's disfavor upon these people in their, their eyes. There's nothing worse in the eyes of a woman than to be barren, than to be unable to have children. He says that would be better than to receive what it is that's coming on this day. And dear friends, you must recognize that whatever the destruction was, whatever the wrath and the punishment was that came upon Jerusalem in 70 AD, it was but a picture of the wrath in God in hell. It was but a sign. It was but a reminder of the eternal death that awaits those that don't turn in repentant faith to him. And we're reminded by these women that it's possible to have an emotional experience. It's, an it's, it's a possibility to go out purposefully to follow Jesus Christ along the way to the cross, to be moved with emotion, even to be sincere in your emotion and to still completely miss the point. You've got this one man over here just minding his own business and just like that, saved. You've got these women out here mourning and crying and wailing for the sake of Jesus Christ and he looks at them and he says, if you don't turn and repent, you too will find yourself under the curse. You believe me to be a cursed man, you too are under a curse, but I will rise again in glory. But unless you repent, unless you place your faith in me, unless you move beyond this emotion, unless you get rid of this worldly sorrow and you come to truly repent, you will find nothing but eternal death because you have completely missed the point. That these tears of grief, they must turn to repentant faith. Dear friends, this was the final word of preaching from Jesus. The final word of public preaching from Jesus. Now, most of those that heard it, they could not receive it. The Father had not given them to the Son. The Spirit had not given them ears to hear that they could receive it. It was a man that had other plans for the day. He thought he was just coming in the city to observe the Passover, to continue on in his Jew Jewish service. These women that came out to mourn and to lament and to cry, Jesus reminded them that I am not a victim. I'm coming out of my own accord to lay down my life. Unless you repent and believe, this will be of no value to you whatsoever. So we see Jesus concluding his preaching ministry the very same way he began it. You remember back at the beginning of Mark's gospel, Mark 1.15, he said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. 
we see this message still hasn't changed, even when it looks like he's losing, even when it looks like the darkness has overcome the light. Even in this hour of his greatest humiliation, his message does not change because all of this will be of no value to you whatsoever if you do not repent and believe. It's so easy to get wrapped up in emotions. I've warned you a lot about that lately because what I find is I look at the world around us, I find a world addicted to emotions. Constantly chasing emotions, constantly being led by their emotions, constantly allowing their emotions to dictate what they see in God's word. I find a society completely consumed by emotion. And I see Jesus piercing through all of that. I see Jesus pulling back the curtain and saying, no, the problem is not your emotions. The problem is not your feelings. The problem is not what seems right in your own eyes. The problem is you do not see this word and believe. You do not hear my straightforward teaching that you must repent and believe or you will be saved. Verse 22, and they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. So apparently this was the place where in that region the Romans would crucify men and again we're told in Aramaic that the word means place of the skull. Now many of you, you're probably used to the word Calvary and if you read in a King James translation of the Bible, you probably find the word Calvary there. That's just because the Latin word for skull is Calvarea and so you transliterate that and you get the word Calvary. So it's okay, we don't have to change our hymns. We can still use the word Calvary if you want to. But what we read here is that it's called Golgotha. But because of this, because it's called the place of the skull, what we find is that in the late 1800s, there was a number of German uh, theologians and, and Bible scholars that they went out to the region. They thought, we want to find the place called Golgotha. We think it must look like a skull because it's called place of the skull. And so they found this hill not far outside the city of Jerusalem. They found this hill where there's been some, some, some pots, some holes, some caves dug out. And if you squint your eyes and you turn your head like this just enough, it kind of looks like a skull. And then not far from there, there's a little garden tomb. So because of this, there was a number of men. The leading among them was a man called Gordon. That's why they call it Gordon's Calvary. That's the place where they believe that Jesus was crucified and buried. And I have to tell you, when you visit the place, it really does feel the part. Not quite as much anymore because there's a bus station below it and it just blows smog right up over the over the skull hill but it, it kind of does feel the part and one of the sweetest moments that we had in our trip to Israel is when we took the Lord's Supper in the garden tomb you look at it and you go I, this looks exactly like the kind of place I could see Jesus being buried this looks exactly like the place that I can see the women coming and finding the angel having rolled back the stone but the problem is historians tell us that probably this tomb had been abandoned long before the time that Jesus came in addition to this, they tell us that probably the place where this hill stands, it was not by a major road at the time when Jesus was crucified. But if you go inside the current wall of Jerusalem, you have to remember, and this is critical for what we're going to say from this point forward, and we're going to finish here. You've got to remember that the walls of Jerusalem weren't always where they stand today. After the city was destroyed, they rebuilt walls, and the walls moved. But a place that's now within the walls of Jerusalem, there's a place where they tell us was very likely that Jesus was crucified. What you'll find there now is the gaudiest church you've ever seen in your life with more gold and precious stones, and it's, it's, it's horrible. It is horrible. But it's called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Apparently, this church was built by Emperor Constantine's mom in the 300s. Right next to this, there's a place where there is a tomb. And so based on the fact that it's in the right place, based on the fact that it has such an early acceptance, people believe very strongly that this was probably the place where Jesus was crucified. And probably there's a sermon point in the fact that what we see now is this gaudy church sitting on top of what should be a very precious site. But I've come to the realization that if these men had not built this gaudy church on top of this site, we probably wouldn't have access to it today. I'll take what I can get. But very likely, this was the place where Jesus was crucified. Very likely the place where he was, where he was buried. But the important part to understand is that it was indeed outside the city. We know this very clearly from John 19, 20. We know it from Hebrews 13, that it was outside the city where Jesus was crucified. And this is so very fitting. Because as we look at Jewish life, the Jewish people had a very clear understanding that the more holy you were, the more blessed you were, the closer you came to God. There are certain places where those men, even, even in the way that they orchestrated their tents in the wilderness with the tabernacle there in the center, and that you couldn't come into the tabernacle, no one could come in to the holy of holies unless they had met these certain requirements. But there was a sense amongst the Jewish people the very essence of blessedness was being in the presence of God. And that conversely, the further you, met, you left the presence of God, the fur further you moved from the presence of God, the more cursed you were. The blessed are those who stand in the glorious presence of God. 
Cursed are those who stand in utter darkness. In order to give a clear picture of this, we think about the way that the the way that the temple complex was oriented. You remember that on the outside was the court of the Gentiles. That even those who had not come and undergone the Jewish rites of circumcision and cleansing and become a Jewish person, that it was only there that they could come and worship God. That inside of that there was a court of women, a place where those who had been ceremonially clean, where they could come and worship. Inside of that there was a court of men. Inside of that there was a court of Levites and priests. It was only in the very center, the Holy of Holies, that the high priest could go. And even he, only one time a year, after being washed, ceremonially washed, ceremonially washed, taking with him the blood of bulls, that's the only way that he could enter into this most holy of places. Then we see as we move out from there, there was places that unclean men couldn't come. If you were unclean enough, leprous enough, this was seen as a sign of God's curse upon you. You couldn't even come into the city. You had to stay clear of other people, lest your uncleanliness wash off over onto them, lest they become unclean from being in your sight. The difference is very fitting then that we see Jesus being led out of the city gates, that he would not die in the temple, he would not die in the comfort of the holy city, that he would be driven out, he would be led out into the wilderness, that there he would die as a picture of the curse, as a picture of uncleanliness. We see this playing out in the day of atonement. You recall that it's on that day that the high priest would take two goats and one of those goats he would sacrifice on the altar as a, as a sign of the propitiation of the people's sins, appeasing God's wrath for their sins. But there was another goat that they would place their hands upon. This was called the scapegoat. They would place their hands upon this goat as a picture of the sins of men being transferred onto this innocent animal. Then this animal would be sent out into the wilderness. This was a sign of the curse, a sign of being cast out from the land of the living. You recall that any time... A sin offering was to be given, that that animal then had to be taken outside of the city and that there the carcass was to be burned. Constantly taking that which represented sin, that which represented filth, that which represented the curse of God and was to be taken outside the city and there it was to be burned. There it was to be dealt with. And it's fitting that we see this in the life of Jesus Christ. As we approach this table this morning, as we're invited to the table of God, as we're invited to a fellowship meal, as we're invited to come into communion with God, we're reminded that their only basis for being here is that his son was cast out, that his son would be forsaken, that his son would become the curse, that our invitation to come and feast on him here at this table, it was because he took upon himself everything that we deserved. Dear friends, I pray that you see the love of God in this, that his precious son, the one he delighted in more than anything we could ever imagine, that he made him to become the very thing that he most detests so that you and I could eat today. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you, Father, that even in his final hours, Jesus' message had not changed and that you were still calling men to yourself. Father, we thank you that that message continues today. We thank you that because he became a curse, that we could be truly blessed. We thank you for this opportunity today to celebrate that to be strengthened by that. So Father, I pray that your presence would be felt in this room. I pray that you would be honored, that you would be glorified by the way we approach this table. I pray that we would leave this place strengthened. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.